We the members of the secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Hello and welcome to a special episode in our Plague series. Today we have, uh, as is customary, our Plague Specialist, Dr. Matt Hatkoff. Matt, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Matt, for those of you who uh, are just hearing about him for the first time, uh, is a specialist in Plague, microbiologist, and uh, Matt is on the emergency response team uh, for the pandemic at our campus at Chesapeake. And uh, Brian Delius uh, is joining us for the first time. Brian is a PhD candidate at the University of South Florida, where he's working on a dissertation on the environmental impact of agrochemicals on human populations uh, and, and how that intersects with disease. Brian, delightful to have you. Thanks for having me, Rob. I'm really happy to be here. So, gentlemen, before we get into... Uh, you know, environment and plague and future plague and all that sort of stuff. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the wide world. Let's just check in on current events. Now, I know both of your expertise goes uh, well beyond, you know, your general knowledge about the vaccine and what's happening at this moment. But I, I think a lot of people don't quite understand. They have questions. There's all these variants. <laughs> so I just want to get your take on on how things are going. So the vaccine, uh, how is that going right now? So it's February 10th, 2021. How is the vaccine going in the United States? So I think in the United States, if you consider that it's we're about one year out from the first recorded case of COVID in um, the Seattle or the outside of Seattle nursing home, you know, I think we're doing pretty well as a society. I know obviously people are having trouble getting access to a vaccine, but the fact that we currently have two approved vaccines in the United States, the uh, Pfizer Bitnotech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, both of which are mRNA based and require two doses spaced out by three and four weeks. And then we have the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which is using an adenovirus uh, vector. Uh, that is set for emergency use authorization hearing at the end of February. We're in a really, I think, good spot considering how quickly we develop them, especially considering that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are about 90 to 95% effective against what we'll refer to as the original variant. So the first uh, COVID-19 variant that was circulating the world up until uh, recently when these new ones have been identified. Brian, what's your take on vaccines? Uh, I think that the the vaccines, as Matt said, um, are are coming along nicely. Uh, I think there's some some interesting research that needs to be done to determine how they're going to be, um, whether or not they're going to be effective with with these new variants that Matt was talking about. Um, I think in general we're doing a, a pretty decent job of rolling out the vaccines across the country. Uh, and undoubtedly, when we look back at this point in human history in a, a decade or two, I think the speed at which we develop these vaccines to um, respond to this pandemic is going to be hailed as one of the greatest scientific breakthroughs of human history. Yeah, I, I think that, it, as Brian said, when we look back at this, this vaccine, the mRNA, you know, Moderna, Pfizer vaccine is going to be up there with, you know, Edwin Jenner and I think it was 1796 with the first vaccination against smallpox. 
due to its speed. Never in human history have we developed a vaccine from the sequencing of the viral genome, which happened, I believe, in January of 2020, to vaccine rollout and approval, at least emergency use approval, by December of that year. I mean, it's it's a miracle achievement. But I think it goes to show you what happens when you give the best and the brightest minds across the country a single problem to solve and essentially unlimited money to do that. Tell me a little bit about this vaccine. What am I getting when I get my shot? Is, am, I, am I getting the virus? Am I getting a deactivated virus? What's happening? So with the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, you're actually getting a piece of mRNA, which stands for messenger RNA. It's sort of the intermediate between DNA, which is the genetic blueprint. And if any of you have ever watched Jurassic Park, you know, the original one, the DNA goes around and is dancing and it's shown as a blueprint. mRNA is the go-between that then makes the protein. So what the scientists have done is there's a very important piece of a virus called the spike protein, which helps it attach to our cells. So they have taken the mRNA and they've created just the spike protein, encapsulated it in lipids or fats, and then with a couple chemicals, essentially just to stabilize it. Nothing dangerous, you know, nothing that we wouldn't normally encounter really in any other vaccine. And then that gets injected into our body and then our cells take up the mRNA very quickly produce a version of the virus protein, the spike protein, which our immune cells can then recognize. And the mRNA is then degraded pretty quickly. It's removed from the body. And then our body is just basically recognizing the spike protein that's left behind. Why the two shots for some of these? So mRNA is a very unstable molecule. It doesn't hang around for a long time meaning your immune system essentially gets one look at it, you know, over a couple of days, and then it sort of disappears. So our immune system isn't necessarily adapted to that sort of quick hit model of long-term protection. Because if you think about when you get sick, you kind of feel crappy for a few days, because the virus or the bacteria is constantly replicating inside of your body, essentially constantly priming your immune system. So what the second dose does is it sort of is a refresher, a sort of a reminder to your immune system, hey, this is the thing you need to be fighting off. And it actually allows our immune system to respond faster and stronger, which allows us to be as close to fully protected as we can be. And two doses is not uncommon in the vaccine world. We all receive booster shots for various, uh, you know, bacteria or viral vaccines throughout our lives, especially when we're much younger. Now, Brian, you mentioned these variants, and Matt, you can weigh in too uh, if you have some thoughts on this. Uh, what, is, what is going on here? So now we have, what, three variants. So this is like a mutation of the virus. Is that right? Yeah, that that's pretty good um, in, interpretation. Um, essentially, there's there's constant evolutionary selection pressure on, on viruses um, to be um, continuously uh, more contagious. Um, the more people they can inf infect, the more they can reproduce. And theoretically, uh, most viruses should also have a selection pressure to be uh, less lethal to their host. Uh, because if their host dies, then they, they can't continue to replicate and, and pass on the virus to, to more people. Uh, so as, as a, a virus, um, moves through a, a populace, in this case, we're talking about the global human population, uh, It's there's going to have millions and billions, probably trillions of replication events of these viruses, maybe more than that. 
Uh, and by, by random chance, uh, certain uh, variations are going to arise. Uh, the ones that are more infectious or more contagious are likely going to spread throughout the populace faster. So we end up um, getting a, a more contagious disease over the, the long term. However, it should be mitigated a little bit uh, by the fact that there should also be a selection pressure for a less lethal version of it. So more people should be getting sick, but fewer people should be dying, uh, assuming that we don't uh, or we aren't able to vaccinate the majority of the world uh, before that process plays out. Is this how it's happening in Africa and Brazil? I think so, yeah. Well, that's kind of encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> less deadly right yeah we, we haven't necessarily seen a decrease in lethality yet while we are seeing the increase in infectivity um and one thing that the the media and, and the scientists are all focusing on is that very few select of these variants you know we hear about the uk variant the brazil variant the south uh, south africa variant there's now a west coast of the united states variant the only reason we're focusing on these is for a couple of reasons. One, they're becoming more infectious. And two, these mutations happen to be in very um, specific and important points of the spike protein. So if there is enough mutations there where the virus can still be infective, infectious, I should say, um, but it can escape an antibody treatment or a vaccine, that's when we become concerned. And that's why there's a lot of talk about whether there will be immune escape from these variants. Um, the, the good news is, though, that if we develop a strong enough immune response, as the virus continues to mutate to escape the immune response, it essentially can no longer bind to the proteins on our cells, and then it sort of mutates itself out of existence, although that's not actually what happens, but that's one way you could sort of think about it. Weird. I mean, there's a there's an example of... Um, you know, this type of mutation happening recently in the, the mid 2010s, um, Ebola, there was a, uh, it was a, a pandemic since there were cases on the European and the American continent as well as Africa. Um, but Ebola historically had been anywhere between 75 to 95%, uh, had a 75 to 95% mortality rate. Um, and it was very, uh, it wasn't very infective, right? It was very hard to get it. You needed close contact. But what we saw in the mid-2010s was the mortality rate of the virus was dropping, and it was still scary high, anywhere between 33 and 50%. Now, that's still lower than what it used to be, but it was becoming more infectious. So it entered the human population, and it had begun to mutate to, again, become more infectious and less deadly. And that was, you know, just five, six years ago that we saw this happen. Hmm. So we'll have to run the numbers as we go then. Yeah, we're, we're hoping that, you know, it will become less deadly. But, you know, we have to sort of see what happens as these variants spread within our global population. All right, so let's turn to today's topic. Uh, I mean, we're Matt and I started this about 11 months ago. We had our first plague episode. I think we're like four, this is like our fifth one, fourth or fifth one. Uh, and uh, Brian wrote in uh, to say that he could speak to the subject of the future of plagues. So we're hoping, many of us are hoping that, you know, by around July, maybe August, we'll have seen the last of COVID, if not the last, the least of it. We'll have it pretty well reduced. 
Um, first of all, is that reasonable? And then second of all, what, what are we talking about? The future of plague? It, it, Matt had mentioned uh, that every hundred years was standard. Uh, that's what we've ex- been experiencing in human history. Uh, what, what do we have to look forward to? Is this it for our generation? Uh, unfortunately, it probably isn't at this point. Um, uh, some of the research that I was fortunate enough to work on uh, with with my PI, Jason Rohr, and uh, a number of other giants in the uh, field of uh, disease and, and agricultural ecologies, um, like the research that we've we've done has shown that it's very likely that as the global human population increases, and the UN's currently projecting that it'll be over 11 billion people on the planet before the end of the century, uh, as that that global human population increases, uh, it's likely that the the number of new diseases that we see emerging is going to increase. And because we're seeing new diseases, it's more likely that we're that some of them are going to become pandemics. Hmm. So the global human population, um, we're talking about because there there are sort of declines or, or leveling off in in what we would call first world countries. Japan, the United States are starting to see birth declines. So is it the particular countries where we're seeing these a- astronomical growth? Is that where we can expect the the pandemic to come out of? That that seems reasonable, yes. So, um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, uh, developing countries for the most part, uh, they're having population booms that are are greater than anything that we've ever seen in human history. And that means that we're going to have to create new agricultural area to feed all of these people. Uh, and when we do that, uh, in a lot of cases. We're creating agriculture in what was more natural habitat, uh, things like like rainforests or um, other productive habitat that has traditionally uh, been been left in a, a more natural state. I don't think that there's any uh, any ecosystem on the planet that hasn't had some anthropogenic impacts, but we definitely have places on the, the earth that are more natural than um, than others. Um, so when, when these natural areas get developed for agriculture, uh, we get an increased, uh, contact between the animals that, that live there and and that where that's their home and people that are coming into the area. Uh, and that gives a lot of opportunity for, uh, zoonotic infections to occur. Uh, zoonotic infections are, uh, diseases that start in non-human animals and through either um, mutation or, or some other uh, mechanism jump from a non-human uh, to a human animal. Matt, could you compare that to coronavirus? What, what what just happened? Sure. So, I mean, the WHO, the World Health Organization, is in China doing this research now. And I, I would like to just debunk that there is essentially no chance that this virus was created in a lab. <laughs> Thank um, you. I think we're going to find that it probably came from the bat population um, in one of the lesser developed regions of China, maybe outside of Wuhan. Um, But, you know, to to support Brian's point here is as we intersect with the wildlife, there are natural viruses that have been there, you know, and slowly mutating, of course, but have been there for, for decades, if not centuries, if not longer than that. And it's only they're only coming out now because of our, the increased human contact there. It's not that they're popping into existence. 
we're just encountering them instead of once every hundred years, we're encountering them more and more often. And as we started this sort of talk about, the more the virus, especially viruses, since they mutate faster are in the human population, the more chance they can mutate, the more chance they can mutate, the more likely they can spread human to human. Now, Brian, do farm animals play a role in this? So I, I hear the wilderness, right? We're interacting with the rainforest animal and that spreads the disease. Can the disease spread to the pig and then the pig to the human? Y- yes, that's exactly what happened with swine flu. Mm. Uh, so uh, as as we increase agriculture, we're also increasing um, the number of agricultural animals that are flooding into these environments. So not only are humans having more contact with uh, novel wildlife but um, food animals that, that we farm are also having these novel contacts. And when you think about the way that factory farming uh, for animals is, is carried out, um, it's actually a, currently a, a perfect environment for a, a mass infection of agricultural animals um, that allows the, the viruses to replicate rather quickly and mutate um, with all of those uh, reproduction events. So um, as, we, as we go forward towards the, uh, the end of our century, not only are we expanding the agricultural operations um, to increase the number of food animals that we have, but we're also increasing global connectivity. So uh, it's very likely that as the human uh, population continues to grow across the world, uh, that food uh, foodborne disease um, incidence is also going to spread as we have this globally connected network of, of food production that where we can instantly ship food from one coast of a continent to another uh, overnight, um, as well as, as having all of the opportunities for the, the actual agricultural workers that are rearing these food animals to have um, contact with not only the native, the, um, uh, the new wildlife um, where these agricultural operations are being built, but also with the food animals that are that are also har- potentially harboring these new diseases. Now, uh, Brian, uh, we've heard started to hear suggestions from some uh, celebrity scientists, uh, Attenborough, for example, that vegetarianism might be a solution uh, or might hold some some promise for for the future of humanity. Uh, I, as a pescatarian, I'm not opposed to this approach. What do you think of that? I think that it's absolutely going to be a necessity if um, if we do stay on the the projected course of of human population growth. We're currently at about seven point eight billion people on the planet, and uh, agriculture is used. Um, it's covering about half of the uh, the world's landmass currently, and agricultural production takes up about two thirds of the world's uh, clean water. Uh, so as we scale that up, uh, if we continue doing everything just like we are now, we're going to run out of clean water and we're going to approach running out of uh, arable land. So we're going to need to find some new, either new ways to, to farm, new places to farm, or new products to farm. And uh the production of meat in particular uh, takes an awful lot of water. Uh, so by reducing uh, meat consumption globally, we can uh, better preserve our fresh water sources. 
Uh, we can reduce the chances of, of new zoonotic infections uh, being spread to agricultural workers and, and through them to the rest of the world. Uh, I also think that um, the promotion of consuming insects as a protein source is probably going to, to catch on in most uh, Western cultures uh, within the next 50 years as the price of traditionally farmed meat skyrockets and we have a, a real need for protein, particularly cheap protein in the human diet. Uh, and and the more the more vegetables that we eat in the human diet, uh, we, we're basically finding that they're, that's a, a healthier diet for people to have uh, in general. So uh, a, either a vegetarian diet or a close to vegetarian diet is going to reduce disease incidence uh, in, in general. Um, and it's also going to, uh, preserve, uh, our ability to, um, t to expand our agricultural, um, operation globally. So we have two choices. Either we put cows on the moon or we get used to the McCricket sandwich. Uh, those, those are viable choices. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> yes. Probably the McCricket sandwich is more viable than cows on the moon. <laughs> I, 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 energetically, yes, that's a, a much better use of our resources. Um, a lot of, um, a lot of easy ways to integrate insects into a human diet is actually to grind them up and put them into flour so that you make protein rich flour that doesn't really taste all that different. So you'd, you'd have it in your, your bread products and it would have a, a higher dose of protein in it. Well, that'd bring a new dimension to the British Bake Off, wouldn't it? It would. That would be great. <laughs> It'd be like Fear Factor meets British Bake Off. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm down for that. Uh, Matt, you and I are having a conversation about the flu, uh, and you said something interesting to me. You, you said that the flu was um, sort of not a thing this year, but that we should worry about it coming from animals. This seems like it speaks to Brian's research. Well, I think one of the things we need to, um, well, one of the things that's been amazing with all of the public health measures, or I'll start with that, is the fact that we were very worried about the twindemic this, this winter, meaning that there would, the hospitals would be overwhelmed with coronavirus cases. And on top of that, which they were, we would then have a normal incidence or increased incidence of influenza or flu outbreak, which normally fills up the hospital to higher capacities in the winter months in North America anyways. And what happened is we didn't see that almost at all. We've seen reduced incidence of almost every respiratory and gastrointestinal illness since these public health measures have taken hold within the, the Western cultures, meaning masking, hand washing, which goes to show you how infectious coronavirus is. Um, but one of the concerns I think scientists are, are voicing now is we tend to use the flu data that we would receive in, let's say, January and February of 2020, or I'm sorry, 2021, to start developing the updated flu vaccine for, you know, October and November of this year. And because we are seeing a reduced incidence, at least within the humans, we don't know how influenza is currently mutating because it is still within the animal, animal population. You know, as Brian mentioned, there was the swine flu. We talk about bird flu. Influenza virus has a, no, a number of natural hosts outside of humans. So it is out there circulating and changing 
and mutating just like coronavirus is, but we're not detecting it because people aren't getting sick with it. So it means that our flu vaccine will probably be slightly less effective next year. That being said, everyone should still go out and get it because we've found that even a slightly less effective vaccine and masking can essentially stop influenza. So I think the public health measures are going to stick with us. And I've also seen reports where, you know, and this is because of a decline in vaccination rates, but pediatricians and family health practitioners are worried about childhood diseases like measles resurging because people have been putting off their normal well checks and getting their uh, vaccines, you know, in the children. So we really need to have a push for, for folks, you know, if you're parents, if you've got siblings, whoever, to make sure that they're staying up with their regular vaccinations so we don't see sort of a, a rebound of things that we've had under control up until, you know, modern times. Brian, your research is specifically on chemicals, agrochemicals, yeah, uh, and their impact on environment? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Um, I look at uh, the way that insecticides and herbicides are being used in the agricultural industry and then how, uh, in, in some cases, how herbicides are being used uh, for land conservation as well. And then how those those chemical applications are impacting uh, other flora and fauna, um, particularly in wetland habitats, because those are, um, I think, really important uh, ecological uh, habitats for for human uh, purposes, and also because agriculture tends to um, be built up around water sources, which almost certainly means that there are nearby wetlands. Well, I mean, Matt and I live on the Chesapeake Bay. This is a major concern for us because so many agrochemicals wash down the rivers into the bay and, and cause issues for the health of the bay. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about this. How is this impacting the human population? Walk us through from, from the time the chemical enters the, the wetland to the time it impacts my life. Uh, well, it's it's a lot easier to see um, how some of these impacts occur in the developing world um, because in here in in the U.S. we have uh, superior healthcare to what most of the developing world has. Um, but like one one example that my lab has done a lot of work with is um, with schistosomiasis in Senegal, and uh, Senegal is a West African country. And schistosomiasis is a, a kind of interesting um, human uh, parasitic infection. So uh, uh, um, schistosomes are, are blood flukes. They're worms that uh, their adult form uh, lives within uh, the human um, circulatory system, uh, amongst other animals. And it has uh, an intermediate um, host that is a snail. So um, essentially the the worms in the human bloodstream excrete eggs, which cause a lot of problems for the uh, human immune system. Uh, and the eggs are eventually excreted uh, either through urine or feces, depending on which species of, of schistosome the human's infected with. And when those eggs get into fresh water, uh, they hatch into a form that infects uh, a snail. And then the infected, um, the schistosomes in the snail um, hijack the snail's own reproductive system to make uh, a different form of the schistosome, um, which is then released into the water. And when humans enter the water, the schistosome penetrates their skin and goes into their bloodstream where it matures into an adult. And the the chemicals are inspiring this process? 
Uh, well, they're indirectly impacting it. Um, so uh, one of the ways that um, schistosome, uh, schistosome, schistosomiasis, excuse me, um, is is controlled naturally is by predators of the snail. If um, if the snail population is really low, then there's a really low chance of human infection. If the snail population skyrockets uh, and you're in the developing world where you have to enter water on a daily basis to uh, wash your clothes and bathe and get drinking water, uh, then there's a really high incidence of infection. And when we apply agrochemicals to, um, to fields and you get runoff uh, and the insecticide, for example, kills off um, or, or chases away um, the, the prawns that naturally eat the snails, the snail population um, skyrockets. So it's really important um, for us to take a look at, at what kind of insecticides we're using and whether or not those insecticides are going to impact uh, like predators of, of these snail populations um, to uh, w- which would ultimately impact the prevalence of schistosomiasis. Um, and in Senegal, there, there's uh, a really a really nice experiment that. Um, was kind of accidentally created by the Senegalese government in the the 1980s. They dammed off the Senegal River that flows through the middle of Senegal uh, in in an effort to to flood the the river basin and create more agricultural land. However, in doing so, they cut the prawns off from their um, uh, breeding ground, which is in marine water. Uh, So all of the prawns died out and the snail population skyrocketed, and along the Senegal River Basin, schistosomiasis uh, incidences increased from about 5% to about 70%. The nice thing about schistosomiasis is that uh, we can cure it with a 50-cent pill. The downside of it is, is that we can't prevent it from reinfecting the individual. There's, there's not a vaccine uh, for, for this parasitic infection. So as long as people are still going in the water, they're immediately going to get reinfected. I see what you mean. So in the first world, we would be treating people so that it's not ever reaching a stage where it becomes a serious health concern. But as we get into some place like Senegal, where the healthcare infrastructure is not as strong, this could become a very big issue for, for people's lives. Exactly. And then there, there are some uh, first world potential impacts. Uh, research strongly shows that uh, increased biodiversity in natural habitats reduces the incidence of uh, zoonotic infection. The idea is basically uh, if you have a whole bunch of different species that live in the, the same, uh, same area and you have an infection that can only infect three species, the, uh, the chances of the disease um, encountering another viable host uh, is reduced than if you only have, if, if you have a, a lot of species living in that environment, than if you only have, say, five or six species. Uh, and research also shows that um, the application of pesticides, um, particularly herbicides and uh, insecticides, reduces biodiversity in natural habitats. So it's more likely as we uh, apply these these pesticides, um, particularly in new areas in the developing world, that we're going to see more emerging zoonotic infections. Interesting. Well, what can we do? What can we do? Uh, well, there's a there's a lot of different things that we can do. We can first try to curb human population growth. Wear uh, a condom. I, I think. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's not that's not a bad way to go. Um, actually, ecologically, the the best option is probably um, voluntary male sterilization. But uh, but yeah, if you don't want to do that, wear a condom. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> voluntary male sterilization. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a simple it's a simple surgery. It's an outpatient surgery. It's cheap. It doesn't have a lot of environmental impacts. Um, prophylactics like condoms uh create um a non-biodegradable uh waste product that is going to sit in a landfill hopefully um but it's going to be there for like hundreds of thousands of years before it degrades um chemical means of birth control aren't filtered out by water treatment systems so um chemical birth control enters our waterways and essentially doses the uh, inshore species with the same hormones, which disrupts their reproductive ability, which can cause other uh, ecological uh, impacts and ultimately can impact the um, the biodiversity of a system. So, yeah, voluntary male sterilization ecologically is the, the best option. That is fascinating. It, it makes very good sense. I'd never thought about it before. I, I am sure that I will participate in such a procedure as soon as I am finished uh, creating my brood here. But, uh, it, yeah, that, that makes good sense. This feels like feminism and environmentalism. Yeah, there, there's actually a lot of interesting intersections between the two. But um, I'd, I'd remind you, Rob, if if you take the advice from McKenna in your um, your episode on shroom wisdom, <laughs> you should probably only reproduce once anyway. Yes, that's true. That's true. I've got my one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I don't think Katie and I are going to three, so two's the limit. So other other things that we can do to kind of solve this problem, um, we can increase both agricultural and disease research. The more that we understand understand these systems and how uh, how all of this links together in an incredibly complicated way, uh, the better that we can actually make real plans to to fix these problems that we're inadvertently creating with our ever-increasing human global population. Another thing that we can do is curb the use of antibiotics and anti-helminthics in uh, agricultural animals. Mm. Um, for for the most part, the EU has already done this uh, in in 2006. The more antibiotics and anti-helminthics that we give our food animals, the more likely it is that um, either um, parasites, uh, worm parasites, or bacteria develop resistance to these drugs, which means that they're also resistant to them when they infect humans. Interesting. So so getting um, getting some of the, the chemicals out of our agricultural industry and instead using um, increased hygiene uh, in food production is is a way that we can combat this. Brian, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up the, the antibiotics in animal use. Um, I don't have the study in front of me. So, Rob, I hope your listeners forgive me if I misspeak here. But I speak off the top of my head and out of my butt all the time. But since you've given that yeah. caveat, Matt, you're now allowed to speak. But I promise you I'll get messages. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, there, there was there was a study and I want to say it was in Denmark um, early on where they reduced antibiotic use in feed animals only. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they tracked the incidence of antibiotic resistant bacteria in hospitalized patients. And there was a slight um, delay in this effect, but they, uh, they saw a decrease in antibiotic resistant bacteria in hospitalized human patients. And the only change they made within their society was reducing or eliminating prophylactic antibiotics 
within the animal population. Now, if animals were still sick, they were still allowed to treat. They still treated the humans the exact same way. So that one small change has major consequences because if you talked to me in 2018, I wouldn't have said COVID was my number one concern. I would have said it was the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections that is going to pose the first major challenge to human health in the next decade. So now if I buy organic, can I rest assured that I'm not getting an antibiotic-dosed animal if, if I am a meat-eater? I believe so. I, I don't know the qualifications, but I would assume that that would, organic status would preclude those individuals and farmers from treating um, the animals with antibiotics. What do you think, Brian? What, what, what labels are we looking yeah. for? Yeah, certified organic meat, um, it, assuming that the um, producers are not lying and that the um, USDA isn't missing them cheating, uh, should not have antibiotics used as any kind of uh, uh, growth stimulant in them. And the logic is that th th these animals produce more meat. Is that why we're prophylactically dosing them? Yeah, they grow faster. The, the idea is that... Um, uh, getting sick costs an organism energy. If uh, you prevent an or organism from getting sick uh, during its growth phase while it's uh, juvenile, it's going to grow faster. So uh, we dose a lot of our, our meat, um, meat animals, um, particularly cattle with, uh, and, and poultry as well, with antibiotics so that we know that they don't get sick and all of their energy goes into growth um, before they become reproductively uh, active. Interesting. Well, here's the big question, gentlemen. How often can we expect this plague situation to happen? What, what are your guesses? So it was every hundred years for quite a while. What, what's, our, what's our time scale now? Well, you know, let me just do a quick recap of, let's just say, the things off the top of my head from the last hundred years. Because we, we compared to the 1918 influenza because it is a respiratory illness that spread across the globe very quickly, right? But if you look from 1918, excluding the other different strains of the flu, we have also experienced outbreaks or pandemics of Ebola, Lyme disease, West Nile virus, Zika, SARS, MERS, and HIV. So I think we have to redefine when we say once every hundred years. Do we mean once every hundred years? It is a huge mountain that gets dropped on us, that it's cataclysmic within a six-month period? Or is it once every five or six years that a new or re-emerging uh, microorganism enters the population and then spreads via various mechanisms, whether that's airborne, whether that's foodborne or vectorborne being transmitted by something like a, a mosquito or a tick? Um, I think this is going to be, unfortunately, the new new normal. Because these are different situations, right? HIV, uh, the the is certainly not society stopping. Like you can still go to the restaurant during an HIV pandemic. And Ebola that 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 was sort of localized, right? We if we would have had Ebola break out in the United States across the states, we would have had a shutdown. Well, yeah. I, I believe, I mean, before the 2013 outbreak of Ebola, the most people that had ever been infected at any given time was maybe one to 200 people. And there was something like 30 to 40,000 people that were infected during that time, which is a major jump. And the concern is it's jumped once to become more infectious 
what's next? Like, can it jump to become even more infectious? And the only reason we weren't as scared about that is because, unfortunately, it was confined to the African continent and developing nations. Um, and, you know, Zika was spreading up. It was uh, mosquito-borne. It was vector-borne. West Nile was vector-borne. Lyme disease was vector-borne, meaning these are transmitted by, you know, mosquitoes and ticks. And, and they seem to be less scary or dangerous unless you're somebody like me who grew up in southern Connecticut who had to cover himself with, you know, insect, you know, bug spray during the West Nile outbreak in 1999, or was always told to stay away from long grass because of ticks and Lyme disease. So, you know, a lot of it is where we live. And I think that goes back to a lot of what Brian was talking about with the, the agriculture and the human population growth. As the climate changes, the uh, regions in which the vectors can spread becomes wider, which means vector-borne disease is no longer um, confined to the the tropical or subtropical tropical belt. And then we also have to start talking about what the heck is buried under all that permafrost that's melting, because there are sure as heck going to be some uh, some microorganisms up there that we haven't seen in tens of thousands of years. So they'll just unfreeze and come right back to life? Quite possibly. If they're frozen under the exact right conditions it's not out of the realm of possibility that's terrifying brian what's what are your thoughts on the our time scale of pandemic well i think that the the time scale of pandemic is is definitely going to shrink it's it's not reasonable to um to look at this data and and hypothesize a, a particular year or or range at which it's going to happen but i i think that we need to start adapting to the mindset that this is going to be a new normal that happens from time to time in our lives. It may be every 10 years or maybe every 20 years. Uh, but with that in mind, uh, I think that we need to, to refocus our resources to better detect these diseases as they're uh, occurring early in their cycle so that we can take adequate protective measures to prevent them from turning into pandemics. Um, and I also think that um, some of these uh, social distancing measures that we're taking during, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, may be here to stay. If, if we masked on a regular basis when we're in public spaces, we would drastically reduce uh, the infection of, of communicable airborne diseases. Uh, like Matt was saying about the common flu. So if if we can change our behavior uh, and change where we're focusing our resources to to protect us from some of these things and change our our agricultural practices to um, to better protect us from from the likelihood of of a zoonotic infection jumping uh, from an agricultural animal to an agricultural worker, then uh, all of these things together may change the the trajectory and the the impacts, the number of people that get sick and the number of people that die from future pandemics. Uh, and I, I think in this case, the old adage that uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure really is the way that we need to start looking at this. And instead of instead of waiting for a pandemic to emerge in some part of the developing world and then panicking to try to prevent it from getting here, 
uh, we should be really thinking that it may already be here before it's been detected and act accordingly, but in a, a rational manner, not in a fearful manner. I'm going to reach for an element of hope here to end on something positive. Uh, do we, can we hope for, for these things? Can we hope for, for positive change? Yeah, I think we absolutely can. Uh, like we're, we're already seeing uh, masking becoming uh, a norm in a lot of Asian cultures. I think it's going to become the norm in Western cultures. Um, I think that the speed with which we've produced the the vaccine for COVID-19 really is um, a modern scientific marvel. It's, it's going to be something that, that is going to be looked back upon with um, great awe and appreciation. And, and the fact that we've been able to focus uh, our global efforts in disease research uh, to, to muster a, a vaccine for a brand new disease in under a year basically means that we have the technology to ensure that a pandemic is no longer a reasonable uh, means for wiping out the global human population. What I love about the vaccine, it feels like it's an object lesson in history. We, we have this great man theory of history that, you know, well, here comes Columbus and now we discover America. Here comes Einstein and now we have a uh, theory of relativity. But in fact, all of the great discoveries are, are the work of a lot of people. And right now we don't have one person that we're lauding as the person who solved the the, the pandemic, we have multiple vaccines being developed by large teams of, of researchers. I mean, this is how human knowledge really advances. It's not just one guy. It's many, many guys and gals and non-binary folks coming to a conclusion. Am I right? I think that's absolutely true. And uh, like history in, in the distant future may forget all of the people that were involved in this and just... Uh, tout that it was it was done by Hermes Trismegistus but uh <laughs> nothing wrong with but that but the truth is <laughs> the truth is that this is is a, a real joint effort no one person made the huge stride um and this is this has been a real team effort uh and and that's really the the direction that that science across the board is going right now um, it used to be really common, uh, even 30 and 40 years ago, for cutting-edge manuscripts to have one or maybe two authors. And nowadays, it's more common to see a dozen or two dozen, or in some cases, six dozen authors on a really good cutting-edge paper. Matt, any positive words to uh, end on? Yeah, I think if we want to extend the air of hope further is... I think this has forced us to advance the way we're thinking in a single leap is as opposed to a number of small steps that may have taken us to get here. And I'm truly, truly hopeful that, you know, the sort of trial by fire of the mRNA vaccine will lead to a essentially a new era of vaccination and vaccination strategy. There are talks of it, you know, in the media at least, but I'm also hopeful that maybe this type of strategy can be used to finally produce a vaccine for something like, um, you know, HIV or some other diseases that have been um, notoriously difficult to develop a vaccine for. So I think we have hope from that. And, and I agree with what Brian's saying that, you know, I think we're entering an era of increased collaboration between um, scientists and healthcare workers that's ultimately only going to benefit us as a, as a human 
uh, community. And I think one thing we need to remember from this is that we also need to make sure that we take care of, you know, the the people who may be at the lowest spot or the least advantageous positions in their lives, because if they're still susceptible to a disease or to an outbreak, then essentially the entire world is too. So I hope that ultimately, once we get through some of the nonsense and the anti-science bias, we can realize as a global society that we have to pick all of ourselves up simultaneously and we can't have the haves and the have-nots because if that continues, then this type of you know world we're living in right now is is just going to be the inevitable future. I love that. I mean, growing up, you think about places like Africa and you think, oh, those people, yeah, they just deal with that stuff. They just have those diseases. That's just what it's like to be over there. But the notion that those diseases are our diseases, that those people are us. Uh, I, I mean, what that is a better world to live in, isn't it? Yeah, I absolutely think it is. And I think that is a really key takeaway uh, from a, a policy perspective, uh, both from from the discussion that we've had and, and the way that research is, is looking as well, that the most dangerous places for new diseases in our world is in the developing world. So if we no longer have a developing world and we create a, a world in which everyone has access to reasonable health care and everyone has access to reasonable sanitation, the likelihood that anyone gets infected with, with these diseases drastically reduces. Uh, and for that matter, um, we, we need to make sure that we can actually feed uh, everyone because general health is a, a big indicator of disease susceptibility. Everything that we can do to take care of, of the populations in, in the developing world is not only morally the right thing to do, but also protecting the developed world from, from new diseases like COVID-19. Good morality is good science. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for joining me. Thank, thank you on behalf of all the confessors out there for sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, Matt, as usual, Brian, for the first time, uh, I really appreciate it. This is an excellent conversation um, and really enlightening, I, I think, on, on subjects of, of the plague. Thank you, Rob. Absolutely. Uh, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, on behalf of Matt and I, I want to say good luck with that dissertation. We know what that's like. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we hope you get out to the other side as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, defend this semester, so in, in a, about another month. That's excellent. Keep us updated. Congratulations on reaching that phase. Thank you. And uh, if, uh, if you guys hear of any job openings at uh, Chesapeake, let me know. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Matt just so happens to be the, uh, one of the co-chairs of STEM, so uh, yeah, he'll be in touch. I'm well aware. <laughs> all right guys thank you again this has been an occult confessions plague special